it's harder to stay as focused and motivated when I haven't been running up to the standards that I am always set so high for myself that I haven't necessarily been running as fast as I was hoping or winning as many races. And so it's been harder to be there 100% focused all of the time. You find yourself drifting and you've got to recalibrate all of the time. If anything, this situation has sort of given me a whole new vigor and excitement. It's It's been the, the jolt of energy that's needed. And especially with the news just coming out, it's almost added accountability to, to prove that this system can work fine. So yeah, I think actually it's only going to help because it's given me that much needed change of scenery to mix things up and not just be the, the same cycle that I've been on the last 15 years. That's Nick Willis. And this is the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, I spoke with two-time Olympic 1500-meter medalist, Nick Willis of New Zealand. Nick is 37 years old. He won bronze at the 2008 Beijing Games and was later upgraded to silver after Rashid Ramsey tested positive for using performance-enhancing drugs. He also took bronze in Rio in 2016, charging down the home straight to put himself on the podium in the final meters. In addition to his two Olympic medals, Nick has five Fifth Avenue Mile titles to his name and personal bests of 349.83 for the mile and 329.66 at 1,500 meters. He's also run a sub four minute mile for 18 years in a row, tying him with countryman John Walker for the longest streak in history, one that he hopes to break in 2021. We covered a lot in this conversation from Nick's new job as athlete experience manager at Tracksmith to how he's thinking about the next few years from both a professional and a competitive standpoint. We talked sponsorship at the highest level of the sport and what he thinks can be done differently. Nick told me about learning not to get caught up in comparing himself to what other athletes are doing, how his training has evolved as he's gotten older, and what his dual coaching arrangement looks like with his college coach, Ron Warhurst, and his wife, Sierra. We also got into his thoughts on doping. He gave me a blow-by-blow description of the 2016 Olympic final, and we even talked a little basketball to open this one up. Okay, let's dive right in with Nick Willis. All right, Nick Willis, I have been following your career for almost as long as I've been running myself. And amazingly, this is the first time we've ever spoken. It's an honor and a thrill to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hey, thanks, Mario. It's a a great privilege to be on here. I've been a a fan of a lot of the podcasts that you've been producing of late. Um, It's kept me going. I'm staying motivated when I've been wanting to cut my run short during these sort of having to run solo times during this pandemic. So thanks for that. And yeah, it's a it's a privilege and hopefully we can um, maybe provide some of that to some other kids who might be out running in the next coming weeks. Well, that means a lot to me. Thank you so much. There's going to be plenty of running talk over the course of the next hour or so, but before we get into all of that, I want to talk basketball with you for a bit. Um, You posted a list to Twitter recently of the 10 players who have held your attention the most as a fan. And given that we're the same age, I wasn't too surprised that most of the same players also held my attention in the past. So I've got to ask you, and I mean, I know that you're a biased Pistons fan, but who do you like in a one-on-one matchup, Chauncey Billups or AI? 
One-on-one, I'd have to go AI. Peak AI was unbeatable, um, but he deteriorated pretty pretty quickly, whereas Billups still held his own as he moved over to Denver and then to the Clippers. So, yeah, I've got a probably peak peak athlete. I'll give it to AI, but if you had to pick at a random point of their time, if you threw it into sort of a, a roulette wheel um, <laughs> of what year of their career, then perhaps to Chauncey. But he had a lot of strength, so he might have been able to um, yeah, just sort of bully ball um, bully ball AI, but Chansey was a surprisingly strong player for a point guard. Not many point guards can post up, and he certainly had that ability and to, to draw contact and still finish at the rack. So that was that was one of the reasons why we all loved him, as well as his being a Mister Big Shot, of course. <laughs> and so yeah, I actually started being an AI fan um, in New Zealand when my friend had come back from living in the states, and he showed me the the clip of AI crossing over Jordan in his rookie year, and so. I followed his career through there. And then my freshman year at Michigan, I got invited to watch the second round playoff game, 76ers versus the Pistons here in Detroit. So I was going in as like a fan of the opposing team and um, <laughs> it went to double over time and the Pistons ended up pulling out the victory and the crowd won me over and it was such a hype atmosphere in the arena. And ever since that day, I switched to being a diehard Pistons supporter and we had a, a pretty good run my first few years living in Michigan. It was a lot of fun. And yeah, it's been a, a journey since then, to say the least. Well, I can appreciate that. And selfishly, as a Celtics fan, I'm a little disappointed because we drafted Chauncey Billups out of Colorado. And he and Rick Patino just didn't really get along all that well. And I think he lasted like a season and a half in Boston and then went on to have a, a fantastic NBA career. And I, I, Always thinking like, what would have what would have been if Chauncey Billups stuck around Boston for a while? Yeah, he bounced. I think he went to Minnesota even after Boston. Um, he did. Mm-hmm. Those are the great stories, though, right? And um, there's there's sometimes stories like that in running as well, where people finally find their groove, the right coaching situation, and that's why it's so fun to cheer for those sorts of people. It doesn't come so easily and effortlessly right out of the gate for them. Um, so yeah, I think that's why as fans, sometimes we get behind those types of stories in sport. Did you have any interest in basketball at all before you got to Michigan? Yeah, I was a huge fan um, since I was about nine years old. Like many of us around the world, the the dream team really Mm -hmm. um, sort of sparked a a keen interest in in the NBA for us. Of course, we knew of those players that were all in a dream team before that, but that really just lit a fire and made it such a popular sport and basketball cards became a huge craze and stores started opening up on every shopping mall in New Zealand and all my buddies and I, we would trade the cards every day and get a bit hooked on that. And we all played um, basketball in in middle school, what we call intermediate school in New Zealand. Um, Yeah. And so that was, that was a big thing until I got to high school and I realized I was still four foot 11 and then not many, not many options, probably not even room on the pine to, to keep the bench warmer at that height. So that when I took, I sort of changed my tack a little bit. I think we would have gotten along pretty well as middle schoolers because that was my upbringing as well. I would get, you know, all the upper deck cards, yep. I mean, whatever brand that they were. And I would even get those, remember those like hard plastics you would put them in to protect them and maybe even like screw them down. I had it, I had this big collection. I'd get, um, at least here in the States, we had this magazine. It was called Beckett Basketball Monthly. And you could go in and look up the value of all the cards when you're trading them with your friends. And I, I, I mean, I've gone down that rabbit hole since in running, but that was my, my life as a, as a middle schooler. Um, 
same thing with that's really with funny because that's identical to what we were experiencing in New Zealand, and yet the internet wasn't really around. I don't think it was at all. Nope. Yet we had that exact same magazine. We probably got it a couple of months after you guys, um, but yeah, the exact same experience. So um, trends carry over even without the internet to fast forward that um, that sort of globalization. I have to laugh a little bit because I was also much smaller as a middle schooler, and I think you shot up to about six feet, which would make, I mean, you could you could play basketball pretty competitively at six feet. I was stuck at like five seven, five eight. It didn't happen to me until I was seventeen, though, which was my final couple of months of high school. So it was a bit too late by then. Do you still get out and shoot around every once in a while? Yeah, my son, that's his number one jam. He loves shooting hoops. So we'll probably, we put in 30 to thirty to 90 minutes every day, and that's a lot of fun. We have a lot of battles, and sometimes my wife has to break up the fights and argument. <laughs> um, so that that's a real joy for me. He's he's six, almost seven, and he, he's as passionate, if not more than me, um, for the Pistons and just shooting hoops and we write up plays and get the whiteboard out and we've got to, if we ever get to challenge somebody after this lockdown, then we've got all these secret <laughs> moves all set up to work up together. So um, that that's a real bonding experience for my son and I. And um, yeah, it might've been, there might've been some secret manipulation taking place so that he would <laughs> love it as much as I do, but um, he, ha- he definitely has it for his own passion now. Well, if I end up in Ann Arbor sometime after this pandemic is over, I'd love to come over and shoot around with you guys a little bit, maybe play some pig or horse, or if I can find a partner, take on a little two-on-two. Yeah, that'd be great. We've got a very narrow driveway, so you got to use a lot of physical contact to get by the defender, but that's good fun. <laughs> well, it make you, makes you a better player. It makes you a little bit more resourceful and teaches you how to be physical, and basketball is a very physical game. Except we keep um, putting dents in the neighbor's car because there's no dents. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting gears a little bit, you just started a new job. How is working life treating you at Tracksmith? I did. It's it's very fortunate. We're in a um, sort of a really crazy state in the world right now. People are losing jobs and the economy's uh, totally stagnant. And so I'm very fortunate. Um, to have gone through this process when the recruitment with Tracksmith and um, sort of my interview process started before um, before all of these stay-at-home orders were put in place and then we were sort of treading water for a little bit and it's come through and it's been really exciting. I, I started officially um, April 20th and um, while I was in New Zealand actually with an eight-hour time difference trying to do Zoom meetings at three or four in the morning, that wasn't going to happen. So we had already sort of planned to, to fly back to the States um, so that we could get back on a, a little bit more of a normal schedule. And I've loved it. I've been very fortunate that um, that everybody else is in the same boat right now working from home. My job's going to be remote-based anyway, but it means that I'm not sort of the only one or one of the only ones um, on the, the virtual call while everybody else is in the actual office for meetings. So it's been yeah a, a great um, sort of orientation. All of the onboarding has been a lot of fun and it's just been really cool realizing that all of these these women and these men are all just passionate people about running and they, they love their sport, whatever um, situation they've come from. They've all got goals and working towards them outside of their jobs as well within their running. So it's it's just like being back on a track team in college, it feels like. 
When did you first start having conversations with the folks at Tracksmith about possibly working for them? Uh, well, just establishing the relationship really happened about three years ago. Um, Matt Taylor, the CEO and the, fo- the founder of the company, he took part in an online running boot camp that my wife and I were, um, were leading. And I think his wife had actually bought it for him as a Christmas gift. So he, he was part of that and we got to know him a little bit through that. But again, you never actually talk to them directly. It's just seeing some emails sort of thing. Um, but when we were in Boston a couple of months later for the BAA road mile that was part of the Boston Marathon festivities, he said, hey, why don't you and Sierra come along to our grand opening of our new store on Newberry Street? We're going to have Michael Stember um, come and cook us some sushi. It's going to be a great time. You and Michael are buddies back from back in the day. And so my wife came along, my wife and I came along and um, we got to catch up with him a little bit there and met some of the people on the team. And just ever since then, we've kept in touch sporadically over the years. And then this year when I was in sort of negotiate, renegotiating my, my contract with Adidas or considering what my options might be, I realized, hey, maybe it was actually my wife <laughs> um, first thought of it. Like, do we want to see this as an opportunity to start the transition into the real world now as opposed to waiting till you're, um, till you're running as completely finished and then you won't have as much leverage? So, um, so we explored some thought ideas and so going to someone, you know, directly was really the, the first step and, um, that I knew Matt Taylor and they were a smaller, com- a younger company, um, with a bit more ability to, um, to bring me on and, and be a bit more flexible and I could sort of hover around the different departments seemed like a really exciting, um, proposition. So I, I put a, a sales pitch together. I, um, threw every possible idea out there in an email and um, thankfully a couple of days later he he got back to me and was really excited about the possibility of that and it was about a two two month process since then but um it's finally come to fruition and I couldn't be more excited about this new journey that I'm on. Tracksmith hasn't had any real presence in the professional slash elite side of the sport since they started a few years ago. Did you have any awareness of the brand outside of your communications with Matt? They have um, sort of supported a couple of the the up-and-coming or sort of local elite runners here in Michigan just with some product or guys who ran at the Olympic trials or a couple of track guys that have come from Boston colleges. Um, so guys that I've run with and trained with have told me about sort of their um, – the programs that they've been a part of, ambassador-type situations. And so I've always had a high regard, and those guys are always boasting about how comfortable their gear is. And um, so I was always there was a, a curiosity about it. I knew that there was an interest to still support um, higher-level running, but um, within their sphere of still taking the approach that it's about the running first and not about um, sort of promoting the, the professional side of the sport. So, yeah, I was curious what their thoughts were, and um, – the timing just seemed to be perfectly aligned. If I had asked a couple of months earlier or if um, they had contacted me a couple of months earlier, it probably wouldn't have worked out. So um, yeah, it was just very fortunate. What did your sales pitch look like to them in that email? Uh, I basically said that I, I've got a passion to have a, a greater impact in the sport than just what my feet can do. I've got I've tried to, with my wife, put on a couple of track meets here in Michigan in the past, but that was just too exhausting to manage on our own. 
I've got all the, I've had this idea for this cross country event that um, me and Malcolm Gladwell were sparring over on Twitter. Um, I've got all these different ideas I want to do, but I, maybe I want to do some coaching as well, but I don't want to exclusively do that. Um, I'd love to, to explore if there's a way that um, we could partner together where I could um, sort of piggyback on the, the amazing um, storytelling ability you guys have at Tracksmith and some of the expertise you have around the presentation of things to, with my sort of ideation skills to, to sort of make a perfect marriage and um, see if we can make some of these ideas come to life. And turns out that they had sort of been thinking along many of the same lines with some of the ideas. And, um, yeah, it was just, as I say, the, the timing just came together just at the right time. Your job title is athlete experience manager. And obviously we're in a very strange time right now where everything is on hold, but once things start rolling again, what is your job going to look like on a day-to-day basis? Well, the big thing for Tracksmith is we have a really loyal um, group of runners who are part of the Hair AC, the Hair Athletic Club, which is uh, a membership-based club where people pay $125, I believe, and they they get some um, limited edition apparel that they are that they get to race in, and they sort of get some unique perks. So my one of my main roles, even starting now, whether it be during the pandemic or afterwards, is to help support and um, encourage those runners and provide programming even within these um, these restrictions that uh, that our world is facing right now to to help them sort of be encouraged by us, but also to, to build more community within each other and to, to grow that group. So that's that's one of our primary goals. But the amazing thing that I'm learning from Tracksmith is just patience to, to do a, a few things really well, and that often takes a lot of time. I'm, I'm really excited to dive in and get going and start um, throwing out ideas left, right, and center, but they're, they're encouraging to say, hey, we've got plenty of time. This could be used as an opportunity, this pandemic, to – to really craft out um, one or two really good ideas that we could put together for six to 12 to 18 months time. There's no rush with all of this sort of stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more of a fly on the wall and um, it's, it's a real collaborative effort is what I'm learning. Um, so there's a lot of meetings and few things are done on your own. It's, um, it's really utilizing the amazing skills of their creative team who really oversee everything to make sure that everything aligns with um, of what the purpose of the brand is about. And that is inspiring people to love running more. So yeah, the day-to-day stuff is really just um, is working out um, the best way to, to fine tune the one or two big ideas that we have and, um, and not rushing that it's, it's not logging lots of time, but um, to spend time brainstorming and to, to fine tune and make it the perfect event to encourage as many people as possible to, to get on board this, this ride that we're all on as loving running. You mentioned how you're going to be based in Ann Arbor and working remotely, but do you anticipate having to travel frequently once things start to open up again? Yeah, that's the hope. I'm excited to, um, to both head to Boston to be a part of, their track house, their their local running community. They've got a couple of workouts a week plus a long run that they run out of their store. Um, hopefully we can put on some events in the Boston community, but we hope to also expand that. Um, they had big plans to, to be part of the major marathons 
around the world this year. Um, obviously, we're waiting to see what happens with um, whether the fall marathons are still going to take place, but that they've got pop-up presence with their stores in those um, in those cities. So those would be focal areas as well. So I know you haven't even been on the job for a month yet, but for the past, I mean, almost 20 years or so, you have been singularly focused on yourself and your athletic pursuits. That's how you made your living. You've competed at the highest level of the sport, and you're still going to do that for a little while longer, but you're also working a full-time job. You've got responsibilities. It's going to occupy more of your time and your headspace. So I'd love to understand how you're navigating that situation right now. Yeah, this sort of goes back a little bit more to um, the approach that my wife and I took before we had kids. Uh, our youngest, our oldest is six years old now. So, But prior to that, we were always trying to work on different projects um, where we were putting on events. And um, there was a lot of outreach that we did both in New Zealand and locally here. So I sort of was managing a, a business. Just um, it was I was self-employed. as a, We were self-employed as opposed to being working for another company. The last sort of five or six years, we've spent a lot of time focusing on our kids. We homeschool, um, do a lot of travel with them. So it does mean that we have to um, sort of allocate our resources a little bit more. So I'll be spending more time um, down in the basement in my office, so to speak, um, with the computer, while um, my wife will have to do a little bit more focused of the time with the kids, with the homeschooling. But we'll balance that out as well. That's the beauty of this situation. It's not a, a typical nine to five. Um, there's a lot of flexibility around that. And I'm one who likes to wake up really early and get up at 5 a.m. So I'll, I'll clock a good two to three hours worth of work in the morning before the kids get up and get to spend a few hours um, with them in the morning. Um, then get a couple more hours work done when the kids will take a nap and then I'll go for a run. And um, I also like to jog in the evening as well. So it's really not going to change how my day is spaced out. It's just where I put my, my areas of focus on. How are you thinking about the competitive side of things over the next couple of years? Are you still approaching it with the same intensity and focus that you have up to this point in your career? Yeah, I'd say that has been a bit of a challenge for me um, the last couple of years, um, just in terms of it's harder to stay as like focused and motivated when I haven't been um, running up to the, the standards that I am always um, set so high for myself that I haven't necessarily been running as fast as I was hoping or winning as many races. And so um, it's 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 been harder to to be that a hundred percent focused all of the time you find yourself drifting and you got to recalibrate all of the time um if anything this situation has sort of given me a whole new vigor and excitement it's it's been the 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 jolt of energy that's needed um and especially with the news just coming out it's almost added accountability to, to prove that this system can work fine um so yeah, i think actually it's only going to help because it's it's given me that much needed um change of scenery to to mix things up and not just be the the same um, cycle that I've been on the last 15 years. I'd love to get your thoughts on the current system of sponsorship for athletes at the highest level of the sport. You are going to be an employee of Tracksmith. Most athletes, almost all athletes, are contractors for the brands that 
they represent. And there are advantages to both. There are practicalities um, to doing that versus having someone be an employee of a company. Do you think the overall sponsorship system needs to be rethought and flipped on its head? Flipped on its head might be a little too strong a way to put it. I would say I wish that there was more flexibility for athletes and agents perhaps to um, to have more ability to, to negotiate and, um, and make creative um, relationships that suit that unique, their athletes' unique um, attributes. That, it, that running is, is a very important um, element to it, but there are also other assets and skills that um, the athletes bring to the table. And they're all different. We all bring different things. And I think what I can bring to this situation is, is unique compared to what I might have been able to bring to, another, to a company 10 or 15 years ago. But we do have ways to contribute. And even if those aren't um, rewarded financially, I, I do wish that um, there were, and this does happen on occasion, but I do wish there were more opportunities for athletes to to build up their their career skills um, while they're a professional athlete so that when they do exclusively enter the real world when their running is completed that or any sport is completed that they're not just going and um, starting fresh again from the bottom that they've already sort of been working their way up the career ladder it might not be in as uh, the regular steps it might only be baby steps but at least it's, it's some steps at all Otherwise, if you come out 10 or 15 years after you finish college, it's like that that degree is almost um, non-existent. The other side to it, which I where I, I feel like it should be, there should be better um, support is the beauty of being a, a W-2 or a W-9 employee versus a 1099 contracted athlete is that then you get you get the benefits that come with it. You can mm-hmm. get health insurance, you can get parental leave, all of the other support structures that a regular employee employee gets that uh, don't exist for a, an athlete. Um, and that also comes with a more consistent regular pay. You get paid every couple of weeks as opposed to every six or three months, which often um, can be delayed anyway. And that, that becomes a, a challenge from how you budget or how you manage your taxes. So there's a lot of there's a lot of refining that can take place. But I'm not saying that this should be the only model, but it should be another model that should be thrown into the mix when an athlete or and or agent go to the table and negotiate. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think with being a, a contractor for a company, oftentimes what I've seen in athletics is athlete signs a contract. There are stipulations in there that, you know, you've got to be here on the world ranking list. Um, you know, you can get reduced if you do X, Y, and Z. Like it's all performance oriented. It's what you do on the track and very little of anything else when many of those athletes could be used for other valuable roles, whether it's product testing, whether it's marketing, whether it's helping out with some other team in the company. But the old school approach has been, well, you know, if this person doesn't work out, we can get someone else in who's going to run fast when they're representing us. But on the other end, like if you look at the Japanese system, a lot of the corporate teams over there, the athletes are employees of the company. They work some other job during the day. They're on some sort of a career path. There's a little bit more stability to it. Um, so the the model is definitely there. But I think you know that's what's exciting about seeing the news 
a few days ago of Tracksmith signing you and Mary as employees is that, yeah, you're going to be representing Tracksmith when you compete, but you're also going to be working day to day with their teams, building a career, uh, which is, you know, not a position that you were in when you were with Reebok or Adidas and certainly not the position that Mary was in when she was with Nike and you can continue to grow with the company. And there's a there's another added incentive that there's a closer partnership um, is felt when you're really part of that team. When a good employment situation is you you genuinely feel part of a team and when you're part of a team, you're working towards a common goal. And when you're on that path, it, it makes you want to do everything you can to help your team achieve that goal. And so although I wasn't totally sure what I still wanted out of my running, like that's where that added excitement has come from. It's like one of the better ways I can help our team as the marketing team is to continue to, to, to be out there and by performing well provides those opportunities and it only helps the brand. Um, when you're a contracted athlete, sometimes, although you often do feel part of a team, it doesn't, it's a different type of connection because you're not in mm-hmm. on all of the meetings or feeling part of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And you had mentioned earlier how it's like being back on the team in college and you're, you know, almost 20 years removed from college at this point. What's that been like for you? Just feeling like, okay, I've got a role here. I've got people supporting me. We can share in this type of excitement together versus just being a lone wolf who's putting in miles every day on his own, working toward whatever the next performance oriented goal is. No, it's it's been great. I mean, first of all, I was super nervous. I I'm a 37 year old who's sort of coming into this world for the first time, and so you feel like I'm gonna be as awkward as a 19 year old kid in this first job, you know. So that would that, but that those nerves are very easy, um quickly alleviated. And no, it's just been fun to to. I came in thinking about what could I offer that was sort of my mindset and probably quite arrogant and thinking that, but it's quickly flipped to like, wow, how much can I learn from all of these amazing people? And um, that's been a, a fascinating switch for me to to act more as a sponge and a fly on the wall as uh, rather than coming in hot and throwing out all my ideas in the meetings, you know? Well, I think there's got to be a little bit of both. I mean, you, in some respects, created your own opportunity. And now that you're in it, you have another opportunity to learn from people who have been doing it for a while and can bring you along. And I I think there's something really beautiful about that. Um, It reminds me of Shalane Flanagan essentially creating a coaching opportunity for herself within the Bowerman Track Club, but she is that sponge that you described learning as much as she can from Jerry and Pascal as she picks up athletes of her own and develops them over the course of, of their career. So I think there's, I think that's, you know, one of the the lessons there is you've got to be your own advocate and create your own opportunities because people aren't just going to give them to you. Yeah. And that sort of goes back to what we were talking about before is like, if athletes are given a voice and a seat at the table within the company, although we may not have, um, a lot of real world experience necessarily that is the advantage that our voice comes from someone who's actually got their feet on the ground from this perspective as an elite or Olympic athlete um, and so it adds a, a different angle and viewpoint that they may not be seeing or hearing um, within within the corporate setting so I, I do think there is a lot that we can bring to the table while still competing um, 
And I, I've already had discussions with some buddies who are professional athletes like, man, I've got these incredible degrees and I'd love to be able to put some of it to use. They don't even have to pay me anymore. I just, it'd be nice to know that um, I'm more than just an athlete to them, that, I, that, my, that my mind actually has value as well. You have an economics degree from Michigan. When you graduated, obviously you decided to pursue your athletic career at that point, but did you have any idea how you might want to use that degree down the road? I'll be honest, when I was in college, as when I was first in college, I was tunnel vision, running, running, running. I, I wanted to get to the Olympics. I wanted to see how far I could take it. And I was just getting by on my classes. Like It was so hard for me to stay focused for more than 10 minutes without thinking about that afternoon's workout. And I was like such a extreme mind person that I, I couldn't get beyond my own training and trying to be the very best I could be. Um, it wasn't until I actually returned to finish my degree after the, the London Olympics where I had, in my mind, had a, a bad performance. I only finished ninth in the final and I was like, all right, it's time to, to finish my degree. I just had one semester to go and I went back and I I didn't think about running the whole semester and I, I was a, a proper student for the first time in my life. And for the first time I started getting straight A's and I was actually attending all of the meetings and office hours and I was joking with all my classmates that um because I was the 30 year old in class what they were the 21 year olds that I've got to buddy, buddy up with them so that they can hire me in five years when I'm finished running and uh, higher up the the food chain so it wasn't until then that I actually thought about how this degree could materialize in, in real world practicality what did that period in time do for you as a runner when you turned all of your attention to academics well i just had such a sour taste in my mouth about running after that race in london i felt like i was in quicksand for the last 200 meters and i i watched the the guys finish from afar sort of thing and i just i i haven't really ever re-watched that race on youtube it's too painful still to this day um and so i thought all right i don't know what i'm going to do with my running whether i'm going to keep going or not um but because i spent sort of 10 hours a day on campus. I was there from eight till six most days. And I didn't, because when I got home, I didn't want to have to study. I did all my work on campus. By the time I got home, I was so fried from sitting at the desk and studying. The The best um, sort of release for me was to go for a run. Like that was just a natural outlet to relieve the stress from the, the studies. And suddenly I actually started getting really fit. I started hammering my runs. I had no structure, but I was, I was probably running 75, 80 miles a week just as um, stress relief. And I, I ended up getting really fit that fall and that sort of put running back into place. And I rediscovered my, my love for it again um, as I was just doing it for other reasons rather than performance-based. The reason I ask that is it sort of reminds me of the situation you're in now where you've got to turn your attention to your day job and obviously running is still a priority for you but as you just described a little while ago the the mindset and the way that you're looking at it on a day-to-day basis might feel a little less pressure filled yeah and i i've been like that ever since then really where running is just something i do in addition to that um even before the 2016 olympics there were there were seasons of focus, but it wasn't like year round. I couldn't take my mind off of it. That was really just a 
on my way up mindset. But once I already got there, then it was more, it was just a part of what I did. And I was able to have a little bit more balance, especially having kids um, helped put all of that in perspective. Um, that's really probably the, the main change that this job will bring is it means I probably won't be spending as many hours with my kids every day. But I've been very privileged that um, my wife and I, that we've been at home and with homeschooling that we've had pretty much 24 hours a day with our kids anyway. So that's probably a good for them to have a, a few hours break from me each day now. Hey, we're taking a quick break to say thank you to my friends at UCAN for supporting this episode of the podcast. UCAN is unlike sugary sports nutrition because it can be used outside of training too. UCAN is based on the premise of steady, long-lasting energy with no spikes and no crash, which is exactly what you want to fuel your day. The new UCAN Energy Plus Protein features 20 grams of plant-based or whey protein plus UCAN's patented super starch energy source. Try incorporating UCAN into your recovery or meal replacement smoothies for a sustained energy boost. I've been using UCAN's Performance Energy Drink before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. In this unique period where none of us are racing, it's a great time to take advantage of the opportunity to try something that is completely different than other sports nutrition. Go to youcan.co slash shakeout. That's youcan.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25. That's SHAKEOUT25 to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. My thanks to UCAN for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. You're 37 years old. Most 1,500-meter runners, by the time they get to your age, they've either moved up in distance or they've retired from the sport altogether. But you're still at it. You won Fifth Avenue Mile last fall. Are you surprised to still be as competitive as you are at that distance at your age? Or did you think you would have moved up a few years ago? Uh, if you had asked me 10 years ago, there's no way I would have thought that I would still be doing this now. If you'd asked me five years ago, I would have thought I probably would have moved up in distance. But when you're in the moment, you forget about your age. You forget that there should be some deterioration. You're like, you just get angry. Why am I not able to crush this workout like I did the two or three years ago? You forget that the time that you lasted a particular workout your pro coach prescribed you might have been 25. But sometimes um, time becomes a little blurry because you're just in your little zone at the hills in Ann Arbor and um, you forget that you're not in college anymore sort of thing, especially living on a college campus and you're around young people all the time. And when you're in a college town, it's such a transient town where once people are over 25, they sort of get out of dodge sort of thing. So I'm always around those young people and training all of the time. So you, you forget your age a lot of the time. How has your training itself evolved, especially in the past few years as you've gotten older? Each year we've tried to evaluate and think, are there changes we need to make to how we've done it in the past? And it hasn't really changed a whole ton. I think the main area is we have to be a little bit more careful about when we do the high doses of anaerobic work. Um, so we try and do replace some of the, the challenging anaerobic workouts. What I mean by that is like 800 meter pace or 1500 meter pace workouts, especially ones that don't have a whole heap of recovery. When I was 22, 
I could do a bunch of track workouts two or three times a week for multiple weeks on end and it'll all be sort of 56 second pace for the 400 meters. Now I might only do two or three of those the whole year and it might be more focused at the end of the workout. Um, so we got to, we replace a lot of those with runs where I'll do a, a good 60 minute run and then do six times 150 meter sprints at the end of it, something like that. Otherwise I just, I crash and burn a lot quicker from that stuff. But the recovery from the, the, the aerobic work, the longer workouts, the, um, the threshold, the sort of marathon or half marathon type training that's actually improved over the years, um, which can be frustrating in and of itself. Cause it's like, wow, I'm doing better times than I was when I'm young, but it's not translating to 1500 meter performance. Like it used to before that was the really tough work to do. But I thought, wow, if I can run under 19 minutes for a four miler, then I probably in 334 shape right now. Now, whereas now when I do that, I might barely break 340 because I haven't, I have to, uh, it takes longer for the, the speedier stuff to come around. Does it make you want to dip your toes into a 5k or do a little longer road racing? Or are you just like, nope, still competitive at 1500 mile. I'm just going to stay there until I'm not. Well, that's, that's what last year was all about. I, um, I was really fighting with my two coaches who are my wife and Ron Warhurst and I really wanted to do the 5K. I was just sick of having that singular focus all of the time. I needed a change and um, and goals just to, to mix things up. And I really wanted to give the 5K a go. And I hit some amazing longer distance workouts. I My best I probably did were these two. I did a two by four mile workout and a four, three by two mile workout. And it was way faster than I ever did when I was younger. But again, when I flew over to Europe to, to jump into a 5K in Rome, I thought I was ready to hang with the big dogs. And I ended up finishing last by 30 seconds in the field. And um, I ran 13.56 and it was running 12.56. And the, the the very last guy who was next to last was a good 200 meters in front of me. So after that, I was like, I'm not cut out to, to run at this pace. Maybe I could run in sort of a, semi-elite 5k race and have a good kick at the end but the the hottest end of the field at the olympic level i'm still no match for the, those guys so I, I should just stick with my wheelhouse the 1500 and um enjoy that while i still can you've captured two olympic medals you've won like five fifth avenue miles numerous other big races you've also run fast at the mile sub 350 you've run sub 330 for 1500 meters what's your favorite type of race to take part in more of a tactical championship style affair or something that's fairly quick from the get-go uh, i i enjoy both for different reasons um when i'm really ready to go it's it's pretty hype jumping into the monaco meet um you know everyone's gonna go for a fast time and I, i'm ready to do it i've i've lined up all my training um that's just such an amazing experience to come through the halfway mark or the 800 meter mark in 151 or 152 when any other time of the year that's about all you've got for an 800 in and of itself but to better go through that and still feel fresh it's just it's an out of this world experience um it's, it's hard to describe really and to still have a kick after all of that it's it's like you you never tire up um that that's an unbelievable feeling but um, deep down, I enjoy a race that ramps up from about 600 meters to go. So it starts off moderate and then 600 meters to go. Um, it starts ramping up and ramping up and ramping up um, until sort of 
a 300 meter to go long drive from home and that's that's sort of my most enjoyable race and I think probably the the type of race that I seem to have um, the most success at and that's fortunately how both the Beijing Olympics and the Rio Olympics races panned out they were faster and slower races but they both sort of ramped up from that 600 meters to go mark and um, that's sort of my 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 wheelhouse I suppose of where my body responds best Take me through that Rio final. There was a big group at the bell. You were firmly planted on the inside when the bell rung. There was all kinds of action happening with 400 meters to go. Take me through that last lap. Well, you really have to go back to 600 meters to go because it had been super slow up to that point, but we actually ran about a 27-second 200 meters from 600 to go to 400 to go. And that, that's honest running. 27 seconds is 54 for a quarter. And that takes an, enough out of people's legs, especially the guys who had been further back who want to move up into position because they're having to run 26 or 25. And if you see the video at the 400-meter mark, Agita, McClurphy, and Kiprop all make huge surges sort of just before the bell. So they're basically sprinting all out at that point to get into position, and then they have to maintain a long drive for the last lap and that's where Centurits and myself um, benefit from that because it, it catches up to those guys in the last 70 metres and they can't sustain that anymore. So the benefit of being up towards the front already before the pace started picking up meant that we could just use the long drive for home at the bell and all these guys are fighting for position. I've got to sort of keep reminding myself, all right, we're going 50-second pace. You can't make any moves. Otherwise, there's there's very little um, margin for error in your your ability to maintain this pace if you do any sort of surging at all. So try and hold your position as best as possible without um, doing any surging. And um, I was very fortunate down the back straight that um, Suleiman from Djibouti, he he got antsy when, when Kiprop made a big move down the back straight. Suleiman pulled off of the rail and try to make a move up onto the shoulder. And that was just the right opportunity for me to to run up the inside and get inside of Suleiman so that when we hit that final bend with 180 to go all the way through to 100 to go, he had to run in lane two basically that whole way next to me. Me and Suleiman are side by side, and he and I were the ones who battled for that bronze medal to the finish line, and it was that extra distance he had to run on that bend that cost him. Um, so... Patience paid off at that time. Other times I've been too patient and it's it's hurt me because I haven't taken the bull by the horns. So you, you win some, you lose some with that, uh, with that approach. And um, fortunately I was able to hang on for a bronze, but maybe if it had been an extra 50 metres, I was, I was catching those guys. So maybe I, I cost myself by being too patient. Going into that Rio final, did you – Think back to 2012, you had mentioned how that was just a disappointing performance for you. You finished way back in the field. You felt like you were running through quicksand over the last lap. Did you tell yourself before you got on the line, no repeats of 2012? I'd love to get into your headspace a little bit. I didn't tell myself that on the start line, but I told myself that all year leading into Rio as I was doing my training. The, the real thing that hurt me in, in the London Olympics was that I peaked six weeks too early. I did the best workouts of my life six, seven weeks before the Games. 
And I still held on to that fitness for about another month. But by the time the actual London Olympics rolled around, I was past my best form. And when you have to run three rounds in five days, you might be able to do one or two good performances, but you can't maintain it all the way through to the final. So I came up um, empty by the time the final came around. Whereas Rio, I I reminded myself of that London experience every single day and, and my training to always keep my keep my cards close to the chest, just do solid work, don't worry about what other people are doing and just stick to your guns and do the basics, um, the stuff that gets me ready and not get distracted by the times or performances or the, the trainings that um, were being publicized um, from Kiprop and Centurits. I remember reading Centurist did 4 by 800 and 147 in a workout and normally that would have panicked me and made me like, change my training to try and match well not that I could but try and match a similar type of workout but this time I I learned from my mistakes and just stuck with what would get me ready the best to be in my best shape for the games and by the time Rio came around I was so confident because I was just coming into my form and um yeah I sort of felt relatively invincible um by that time and it it made handling the stress around being in the village managing sleep all of the other distractions that often aren't talked about that throw people off at Olympic Games, when you're that confident in your ability, it, it eases all of those other stresses um, significantly. It's interesting to hear you say that because as someone who coaches a lot of age group athletes, you see the same thing. And it's easy to do this day and age with things like Strava and Instagram and people are posting their workouts all the time and maybe they they run around the same types of times that you do and you see them pull off this workout that you could only dream of and it makes you think that you know you're not capable of of doing something like that and it paralyzes you and it keeps you from being able to have that breakthrough performance i think people listening to this who aren't anywhere close to an olympic level will really resonate with that and hopefully take something away from it so they can make it to the next level of their own training and racing yeah, and I, I think I'll still be learning. I mean, although I learned that lesson, I'm, I'm sure I still occasionally get caught into that trap again. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why I've I've still been willing to to put my shoes on again each year because there's something more to learn to put um, your, your own experiments and to practice to come out with the answer. And I always thought that if I ever got into coaching, then I could translate some of those lessons later as well. Is coaching something that interests you? It is a great interest of mine, but I, I definitely don't want it to be the only string in my bow. So at this stage of my life, going down like a college coaching or professional coaching path, I don't want to pigeon myself into that um, that narrow pathway. But um, it's definitely something I'd love to explore a little bit more, and maybe there's ways to implement some structures and support um, people within our Tracksmith community, yeah, it's something I'm definitely willing to explore. You mentioned in your own situation how you have two coaches, Ron Warhurst, who you've worked with since your days at Michigan, and your wife, Sierra. I'd love to understand how that setup works right now for you. Basically, from day one, the, um, after my wife and I got married, Ronnie told, told Sierra, you better be down here at practice tomorrow um, when we first returned back from our honeymoon and we went down to the Michigan golf course and he, they hopped in the golf cart and watched me struggle around a four-mile tempo run while they ate donuts and drank coffee. And so a really great friendship between them um, formed and 
he's been an, an unbelievable mentor to her and I, I really appreciate his humility and willingness to bring her a, alongside for the journey because she came from zero running background at all. She had jogged a couple of 10Ks and a half marathon just with her friends but had never been involved in the sport at all other than from a social aspect. Um, and many other coaches might have been concerned about that being a distraction. Um, but she's learned from the best of the best. Ronnie, although a lot of people don't know about him anymore, but he's had multiple Olympic medalists. Um, he's had something like 15 sub four minute milers. He's won like 15 big 10 championships. He's, he's old school and he, he, he understands the mile better than anybody. Um, and so she's been under his tutelage for all these years. So she'd have to be an idiot if she hadn't, um, become an expert herself from all of those, um, those coffees and donuts she shared with him <laughs> over the years. So yeah, it's, it just naturally evolved into the point where she basically took over his duties whenever we're, um, away, which is often six to eight months a year. We don't see him cause we're traveling or different reasons where he's got different things going on or we do. And so she basically, is the, the communicator between the stuff that she and he plot together on napkins at the coffee shop. And then she, she holds me accountable to them, but she's also, because she comes from a, a different background, she's able to offer a different perspective and she's an amazing soundboard. When I come up with ideas of how to adjust my training, if I feel sick or I haven't slept well, or you always have to make decisions on the fly she will be able to offer a different perspective and make sure that what I have um, wanted to adjust is the right decision. And um, it's really healthy to have an alternative perspective that isn't always coming from the same background that both Ron and I share. Is it challenging to draw the line between husband and wife and coach athlete when it comes down to making those types of adjustments or her recommending that you do something differently than you've done in the past? For her, it isn't at all. For me, when I've had a really bad race, all I want is to have my wife come and see me, not my coach. Perhaps that's that's been an occasional issue, but not really. No, it's it's been great, and um, especially having our kids being involved in that journey as well. Like they're down at the track cheering us on, and all of my training partners have always enjoyed that sort of relaxed family atmosphere. It's it's been a lot of fun. What's your relationship with Coach Warhurst at this point? of your life he he's he's basically our kids third grandfather um they they think of him just as dearly as um as anybody in their lives and he's 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 involved in our lives from more of a family um relationship and then sure we talk about running but that's not even second but it's the third priority um around all of the other interesting things that are going on in our kids or his kids life I've got to, gotten to see his son grow up. I came into town when his son was one years old and now his son's about to head off to college. So he's a buddy of mine now as a peer rather than as a kid. Um, so yeah, we're, we're part of each other family's life and I'm sure he's still my coach, but that's sort of second or third priority. When you first checked out Michigan, what were your initial impressions that made you want to go there? The the first thing that made me want to come to Michigan was that uh, I had seen Kevin Sullivan on the cover of Track and Field News wearing this big Block M shirt, and I didn't know anything about the school or Ron or the or anything like that. But I knew that Kevin Sullivan was the man, 
he had then he went on to get fifth at the Olympics and there was this prevailing sentiment in New Zealand and Australia probably as well that if you went over to America on a scholarship that you'd get sort of used and abused and over raced and you'd burn out pretty quickly and not have a a post-collegiate career because that sort of was often the case in the 90s there weren't very many runners succeeding in the 90s in distance running coming out of the US um but Kevin Sullivan was one of the few that had had a great success so I thought I need whoever his coach to be my coach and so from that point it also happened to be that Alan Webb and Nate Brannan signed up to go to Michigan um the year before me and I watched their journey and there was so much media and hype around that program because of Alan Webb he had just been on Letterman and I think they had weekly media press conferences to handle all of the requests for him so that was the hype at the time before all of the Oregons and stuff sort of came into prominence more recently. When you first met with Coach Warhurst, what did he tell you about coming on to the team at Michigan? Uh, he was just excited to to have another kid and always cracking jokes about um, all of the New Zealanders that he used to watch run, Walker and Quacks and Dixon and how they were hippies. And Ronnie's greatest skill is his relationship skills he talks running second and third but just talking about life in a real like laid back um manner and anyone who's ever had to share a hotel room with him at meets um will say that he's one of their top 10 guys of all time and that really was the case and um yeah the 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 thing that has really it really got me going with ron is that Although I've always been a pretty ambitious person, he always seemed to have higher ambitions for me than I did for myself. And he, But he genuinely believed them. They were based on the experience he had had with other athletes. And so that translated over. And then I started slowly and slowly to, to believe in myself more and more, especially over the longer distances. I had never really put in any sort of um, work as a, as a distance runner. I, I came more from a sprinter's background into the mile. But um, it seemed like every workout I was running a new PR in the 5K or tempo runs, all that sort of stuff. And he taught me how to approach the mile from the distance runner's mindset. And I really benefited from that. In some ways, it reminds me a lot of Frank Gagliano, who I had on this podcast about a year ago. He has a very similar people-first approach, relationship-based approach to coaching and working with his athletes and it's almost as if the the running is secondary and many of his athletes speak about him much in the same way that you spoke about ron i'll have to try and sit down with him when i come out to ann arbor to play hoops with you and your son yeah gags and ronnie are cut from the same mold they're very old school and they don't come from a track background ronnie ran some cross country a little bit in college um and did some marathons but he had never done the 800 meters a mile or anything like that and frank came from a football background um so they're really old school and ron's got he was a vietnam veteran and he's they they just have a different approach to it to our generation and there there's good and bad that comes with that but most of all they just they don't put up with the softies and they want you to 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 work hard but um then they'll 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 give you a donut and chocolate milk afterwards and they don't worry about what you eat or all that sort of stuff it's just about um getting the work done and having some fun. It's a refreshing perspective, really, especially this day and age when people try and manipulate every variable, track every little data point that they can and overcomplicate the sport to a degree. 
and it's sort of surprising because Ronnie actually has a master's in sports physiology, so he knows all of the science. He just never brings it up. So if I'm ever involved mm-hmm. in an interview with him, suddenly he start he changes tone and puts on a serious face and starts um, articulating all of the scientific background behind what he does. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've never heard anything <laughs> from you. And he says, I know, you don't need to worry about that. We just let me worry about that stuff internally. That's the art of it, really. Yeah, so it's, it's been a great joy to be on this journey with Ronnie. And um, yeah, I've, I've been very privileged to have that relationship last so long and for him to really be an extension of our family. Um, it's been great. I want to switch gears before we wrap this conversation up. You're a two-time Olympic medalist. Your 2008 bronze was upgraded to silver in 2011 when Ramsey was busted for doping. Asbel Kiprop, who beat you in 2008, he recently got a four-year ban. What do you feel when you hear of guys like that that you've competed against and have finished ahead of you getting popped? Uh, normally, it's it's a moment of satisfaction and celebration because one often has suspicions already established, so it's not necessarily surprise would be the last emotion that you might some might suspect, suspect would feel, or they say sorry, but like no, don't feel sorry. We're happy that's finally get caught. The truth's finally being brought to light. Um, I probably sometimes come from the over cynical side of things, where I probably think more people are, are doping up than perhaps they might be. But um, unfortunately, I've been in, in the sport for long enough to have seen enough things. And um, and a lot of my competitors have tested positive over the years, not just those two, but many of them. Um, so, yeah, it's it's more satisfaction that, the, the, um, that justice is finally being served would be the state of emotion that we, we genuinely feel. It normally involves a lot of text messaging with – with people like, they finally caught him. (laughs) What more can be done to combat doping at the top levels of the sport? I mean, the obvious stuff of increase in testing and stripping folks of, of their results. I mean, the athletes, as you just described, typically know or at least have suspicions of the people who are probably doing things in an unfair way. But what else can be done to help clean things up well i think just more and more of what they have been doing i do genuinely believe that the sport has been getting better and better and better at catching people um compared to when i first was in it um when i was first racing in 2004 there were probably a much higher percentage of athletes um that were getting away with it than they are now it's it's become fewer and further between it's more select situations where people can um, hide in very isolated parts of the world or in society and the spread of communication is making it more and more difficult for rogue situations to occur. Um, I think putting a lot of pressure on federations to, to be accountable to manage their own situations and not being so reliant on the, the world um, anti-doping bodies to have to do it from afar. Um, if you're from often master the Western worlds, an athlete can be tested both both from their own governing body and from World Athletics or formerly known as IAAF, whereas many other athletes in less established countries can only be tested. They're only going to be tested by the international governing body because there's, there's no accountability in their host nations. One idea I always threw out there and it always got thrown back at me as sort of being racist or judgmental was that I felt if you were a top 10 in the world, 
you shouldn't be able to spend a significant time of the year training in a country where they don't have a credible doping um, control system because you basically have a high chance of being able to get away from it if you if that was a route you wanted to take. So I was like, if you're top 10 in the world, you're going to have the finances and the means to go and train elsewhere where you are accessible to the to the doping control. So that's something to potentially look into. And what I just read recently, maybe two days ago, is Sweden is looking at banning um, – no, not banning, sorry. They're going to um, require people who come from countries where they don't have established – or credible doping control systems to provide um, additional intel to customs when they come through the um, the border control, so that they can track them under a microscope the whole time they're in the country for races. So they're already pointing out that it, there are areas of the world which are still sort of under the cloud or like out of they're not they can hide from the doping control so they want to have an extra microscope on them when they come into their country if they're going to be trying to win prize money on their shores i like that and i also like your suggestion about the top 10 athletes in the world because often after the fact we come to find out that a lot of these instances are clustered in certain places which definitely makes you raise an eyebrow yeah, and ultimately it'd be great if every country could have an established doping control system, but how are you going to have that in third world, in all third world countries where there's civil war breaking out and all this different stuff? We've seen what's going on now with this pandemic. Suddenly, like there was no doping control able to take place in New Zealand the last month. You weren't allowed to leave your house. How a doping control is going to come to knock on your door? They're not allowed. They'd be arrested. Um, so that's happening in different parts of the world for different reasons all of the time. So those countries will never have that established. So um, there needs to be better ways to encourage those athletes to to not utilize or take advantage of that system, but to make sure that they're in, in view or accessible to, to doping control. In the past, when you've stepped to the start line, did you ever have the thought that the deck was stacked against you before you lined up or could you just not concern yourself with that because you needed to focus on competing as well as you could to finish as high as you could? I never was on a start line and thought, I, why am I here? This is unfair. But that doesn't mean that I was naive enough not to know what was going on or, um, or I was perhaps even over cynical that I thought sometimes I often like to think that every, all of my competitors are perhaps <laughs> Um, and that's it's even more of the challenge. Look, I'm I when I signed up to be a pro athlete, I knew what I was signing up for. I wasn't naive to that fact. Um, a high, high percentage of people in the top twenty in the world back in the early two thousands were doping. That was just that's how things went on back then. It's a lot less now. Um, and but I still wanted to do it. It was still a path that I had been given a, an amazing opportunity. I'd been given great sponsors, and I got to travel the world and got to go on great races. Um, I think the ways that I've looked at it is like it's still a fun challenge. And um, if they're going to do that, I may as well ride on their coattails and get dragged through to some really fast times as well. As we wrap up this conversation, you've just started your new role at Tracksmith, which you described earlier. From a competitive 
standpoint, what more do you hope to accomplish before you decide to hang it up? I'd really love to be able to make it to my fifth Olympic Games. And once you're there, there's a, you're always, the 1500 meters is a, there's always an unknown factor. Tactics come into play and lots of things can happen. So get yourself on the start line and see what happens. So that'd be amazing. I'd also love to keep this, um, the sub four minute mile streak going. And um, I think I'm tied with John Walker right now for 18 successive years doing it. So it'd be cool to try and take down my fellow countrymen and, um, and extend that record. And I'd also love to keep racing um, at some of my favorite meets around the world and the Fifth Avenue Mile being up the very high priority of that list. It's always a great way to, to finish the season. And um, it's, a, it's a stretch of road that seems to suit my style of racing well. Um, so, yeah, just, just keep enjoying the sport as much as possible and have, have little um, carrots in front of me to keep me motivated and training each day. Can you see yourself competing into your master's years? I think I'm already in my master's years, am I? Isn't 35 the well, new master's I guess, now? I guess technically it is 35, but you know, more traditionally people look at it as 40 plus from a record standpoint. Yeah, I think I wouldn't have as much of a focus that it may not be a year-round focus, but I th- could see myself having seasons of interest. I'm really curious to explore other areas of the running sphere and um my cousin does a bunch of these sort of backcountry FKTs and I'd like to, um, I'd even be curious to try a season of sprinting just from like an education standpoint, maybe for love it. 200 meters as a 42 year old masters runner that might help get my, down in the blocks. That might help my coaching um, stuff down the line as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to just try a whole bunch of different areas of running and um, maybe even a marathon or two um, in the next couple of years. We'll have to wait and see. Well, I appreciate that excitement. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Hey, Mario. Thanks very much. Take you, mate. All right. Another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to UCAN for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been using UCAN's performance energy drink mix before my long runs, big workouts, and races for the past four years, and it's a crucial part of my nutrition plan, providing steady energy that's easy on my gut. Go to UCAN.co slash shakeout. That's UCAN.co slash shakeout to learn more about UCAN's one-of-a-kind energy and use the code SHAKEOUT25, that's SHAKEOUT25, to save 25% off your first order. If you're already a UCAN fan, you can save 15% with the code SHAKEOUT. I'd also like to give a shout out to my rock star team here at the Morning Shakeout, John Summerford of BearsRecords.com, who handles the production and makes this show sound as good as it does week in and week out, Jeff Stern for social media and editorial assistance, and Chris Douglas for managing sponsorship sales. I couldn't do what I do without their help. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>